With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Tonight on Dr. Anonymous Show 200, that's right, 200 shows. I haven't been canceled as of yet. <laughs> Very excited. Our guest coming up will be Dr. Dr. Jennifer Dyer, who is from the Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. You also know her on Twitter as Endogoddess. She's also an author at netwellness.com, and she's a part of a lot of different other projects, which we'll uh, get into. Uh, but she also texts messages with patients. What? That's right. She'll talk about that. And we have a bunch of stuff to talk about tonight. Very excited that she's on the show. So we'll talk about that and a lot more coming up on the Dr. Anonymous show number 200, starting right now. about medicine and social media this is the dr anonymous show live on blog talk radio on a thursday night i am your host the golden voice of blog talk radio my name is mike sevilla and i am dr anonymous to find out more information about me just put dr anonymous into your favorite search engine i should be the top link over there you can also go to DrAnonymous.com. That brings you uh, some blog posts, some TV interviews. You can also go to DrAnonymous.net. Shout out to all 311 people who like the show, who are Facebook fans of the show, however they do that now. You can also go to DrAnonymous.org. That brings you to the iTunes page where you can download this show. Very exciting. You can also listen in real time to this show on your iPhone, including you Verizon people out there. <laughs> also on your BlackBerry, Palm Pre, Droid, Windows 7. Just direct your mobile browser to blogtalkradio.com slash Anonymous. Today is Thursday, January 13, 2011. The first show of 2011. It is 9 p.m. Eastern Time. 
And at broadcast time here at Dr. Anonymous World Headquarters, it feels like 13 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right, it's been snowing here this week. My guest coming up will be uh, Jennifer Dyer, MD, MPH, meaning Masters in Public Health. She works at Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. She's a pediatric endocrinologist. She'll explain what that is for those of you who may not be that familiar with that. She did all of her medical training in Texas, and but she's here in Ohio, so we'll explore that a little bit as well. She's known on Twitter as Endogoddess, so follow her over there. She's also an author at netwellness.com, which is a consumer health information site. Her social media credentials are interesting. In addition to being on Twitter, she's in the midst of writing up and publishing a study in which she used text messages. That's right, kids, text messages to communicate with her patients. Really? We'll talk about that. She's also talked about some uh, health topics on the Today Show as well and other venues. In doing my research on her, I found this quote that she says. She is very passionate about uh, health literacy, and she says, I am finding more and more that health literacy is what I think is important and also a personal passion. All of my medical research discoveries in the world can never help the public to be healthier if the public does not understand or care about how to become healthier. As a physician and a public health specialist with communication training, I feel it is my mission to help communicate and guide patients through health knowledge in a way that should that they can understand and value in order to live their healthiest and happy lives. So even though we work in the same state, we only uh, met a few months ago on the West Coast in Seattle at uh, the Swedish Medical Center Healthcare Symposium. There's a blog post about it on DrAnonymous.com. Check that out. Since then, we've been working for op- looking for opportunities to work together, and I'm very excited to announce we'll be giving a talk in Columbus, Ohio, in April at a sports medicine conference. Very excited about that. We may get into that as well tonight. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for featuring the show here again this evening on the front page. For those of you who are new to the show, I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a family physician in full-time private practice here in beautiful northeastern Ohio. And if you're listening live, you can see my shining face here on the webcam here this evening. Just go to the top of the chat box, click on the webcam icon, and you can see me doing this show right before your eyes. I know, very exciting. Before we go to the break and bring our guest on, I do want to bring a big, big shout-out to our chat room here. Hello, chat room. We have uh, PK. We have uh, J-Man from the I'm With Stupid show who will be going live in just two hours at 11 p.m. Eastern time. We have Liz. We have Murray Jones. We have a guest. We have Jesse Fultz. I encourage the guest, if you would like to participate and type in the chat room and make fun of me like the rest of these people. <laughs> I encourage you to uh, register here at the Blog Talk radio site. You'll be able to type in the chat room like everybody else. So I will uh, take my break now. 
And after the break, we will have our guest. You're listening to the Dr. Anonymous Show, a member of the Family Medicine Education Consortium. You can get there by going to fmec.net. Also a member of the Better Health Network at GetBetterHealth.com and also a member of the ProMed Network of Podcasts. You can get there by going to ProMedNetwork.com and we'll be right back. Yes, that's right. Lowering our blood pressure one point at a time. This is the Dr. Anonymous Show live on Blog Talk Radio. On the line we have with us right now, my good friend, Dr. Jen Dyer from Columbus. Welcome to the show, Jen. Go Bucks. Hey, Mike. How are you? Good. How are you doing tonight? Doing super tonight. So how's the snow down where you're at? Because it was crazy up here this week. How about down there? I think that the weather is obsessed with snowing, <laughs> but it's really wet and kind of packy, so it's not too bad. <laughs> well, good. Well, uh, I know we've been talking for months and uh, just looking for an opportunity to bring you on the show and uh, very excited about uh, about tonight. We'll, we'll be talking about uh, a lot of stuff here. So um, I guess just starting out, um, I uh, I was reading and uh, about you and uh, I guess originally uh you were thinking about being a journalist and somehow you got to medical school. How how did that all happen? Well, yes. Um I am I do not officially have ADHD, but I do have many interests and uh growing up I wanted to be probably everything. But um, my biggest and most uh, frequent passion was always writing and wanting to kind of be in the middle of things. So I really thought that, you know, being a journalist was kind of what I thought I should be. So I did a little work with the high school newspaper and yearbook and amongst other things and just decided I wanted to be like Barbara Walters. (laughs) So that was Ah. my major in uh, when I first started college, but um, and then I wanted to be a science journalist because that was really what my passion was about, um, physics and, you know, just science in general, biology. It's not exactly the ticket to coolness to be, like, such a science nerd that I've always been, but, uh, but you know, you, you are who you are and you just embrace it. So that's always been my, my philosophy. So um, anyway, uh, for whatever reason, I thought that I just couldn't be a doctor, but um, when I really thought more about it and thought about reporting about doctors, that I thought, well, I might as well try to be a doctor. So I stayed a journalism major, and then I changed to an English major because I thought that it would actually be a little quicker to finish everything. So I became an English literature major, and a lot of people in my classes 
you know, we're all, you know, about this, we're super competitive, and they're like, you're never going to get in, (laughs) and, you know, you're not, like, a science major, and so I just said, yes, I am going to get in, and and I did, so, um, but I've never really lost my dream, but you get kind of lost into all of the training, and you have to go through all the recipe of steps to become a doctor, which takes a lot of years. And it can sometimes kind of suck the creativity out of you, but um, I'm really glad that I didn't let it happen. And and I have been pursuing a lot of different avenues to keep that creativity alive. Great, great. And and uh, I was reading about you before, and and, and uh, you said in medical school, medical school, everything kind of interested you um, as far as from a specialty standpoint. How did you end up? Uh, choosing pediatrics uh, for your residency? Well, choosing, as you know, choosing a, a specialty and a field is is a real critical point in your career. And I was open-minded throughout my entire third year, and I just found myself really the most motivated in my pediatric rotation. And what I mean exactly is that whenever I was on call, and, you know, this is when when you're on call every third night as a medical student, which I don't really think they do as much anymore, but I'm not exactly sure, but at least they don't. No, they don't. They're, they're, they're uh, slackers now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I was a medical student in pediatrics and we would stay up all night, we didn't even have a call room, so we you know, found places to sleep, basically, if we could. Well, the the main sleeping hours for medical students at that time was between 3 and 5 o'clock in the morning, if you got that chance to sleep. So I was checking on my patients that I had before the, you know, wondrous 3 to 5 o'clock hours in the morning, and there was a little boy there that was in the hospital. I don't actually recall what he was there for, but... But his parents had to leave because they had other children, and he was scared. And he was like maybe, you know, kindergarten or first grade age. And he had recognized me because I was there when he was admitted and and been a part of the team as a medical student. And um, he asked me if if I could just stay with him until his mom was going to come back at 5 in the morning and uh, read him a book. And, and, you know, I've... Of course I did, and I felt inspired to do that. And so I didn't get any sleep that night, and I realized that I thought that, you know, that that's probably the field for me because I didn't hurt the next day being extremely tired. I didn't have any regrets not getting any sleep, and that's just the way that I thought that I could judge what career I should do, and I've never had regrets, so I'm happy about pediatrics for sure. And it's a lot less stinky than the VA hospitals, I would say. (laughs) Nothing against VA hospitals, but little baby poop is a lot better smelling than um, some of the older poops, I guess. So, um, so I guess for, for the for the regular person out there, how would you describe what uh, endocrinology is your specialty, and maybe just describe a little bit about the training process as far as uh, residency and fellowship training? How how long is all that? Well, sure. Actually, I am the only doctor in my family, so I am cons- I have always been explaining this because uh, they my whole family is from Texas. They have extremely 
strong Texas accents, which I don't because I have uh, taken voice lessons as a child and, and also being uh, in the metropolitan area of Dallas where I grew up, you don't tend to have as strong of accents, but my parents do. So I'm kind of like a child of maybe British parents that are, have American uh-huh. children. You know, I'm kind of like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, but my parents are like, what is an endocrinologist? You know, so they're like, what the <laughs> heck is that? So what it is is a hormone doctor. So Fifty percent of what I do is is pediatric diabetes, and the other half of what I do is anywhere from um, growth problems, being too short, too tall, being too fat, too thin, being, um, uh, you know, trying to tell if you're a boy or a girl. So I like to say that a lot of what I do is on the TLC show, so or the TLC channel. (laughs) So, yeah. you know, like the world's tallest man, the world's shortest woman, um, am I a boy or a girl? These are the things that I do. So it's okay. incredibly interesting. It's always good cocktail party talk to to bring up these things. And um, it's incredibly fun and rewarding. And what the training process is is that you go to four years of medical school like everybody does, and you become either an MD or a DO, and then you go through pediatric training. So I am a general pediatrician as well as a specialist, and I'm actually board certified in both. So I do one intern year and then two additional years of residency, and I could have started a general pediatric practice, but I knew that I wanted to be a endocrine specialist, so I continued with three more years of training in endocrine fellowship. And then I took my first job in Ohio, and that's because I married <laughs> an, a Midwestern guy, and uh, and I am just as happy as I can be here in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> um on the line with us we have uh, is uh, Dr. Jen Dyer from uh, Columbus, Ohio, from Children's Hospital there. And uh, uh, Endo Goddess on Twitter. Uh, how'd you pick Endo Goddess? I mean, it's probably pretty apparent, but uh, <laughs> was, was there a big thought process on that, or was that was just something that wasn't taken? Well, I was uh, at the American Medical Association uh, Media Communications Conference when I met Dr. V, Brian Vardabidian, and he had a seminar about Twitter, and this was in April of 2009. So I, along with several other people that just started Twitter that day, um, just decided to sign on because it is so easy to do, and I signed on with my phone and just decided to make a name that I thought, you know, described me because I do really love fashion, and... um, I just thought it was catchy, so um, it hadn't been taken yet, so I just took it, and uh, and I do think that the the um, instruction that Brian gave us, because the central question was, why does a doctor need to be in social media, or need to be on Twitter, or why? And he said, as as I know he's been on your show and listened, and I've listened to your show with him on it. I think his points are critical, that the fact is is that I think it's civic duty for all of us doctors, 
especially ones like myself that have been educated with a public university system that's part of taxpayers' money, um, I feel like I owe it to the people to give back the knowledge that, that I've received that can really help them. It doesn't do any good if I just keep it all to myself. So um, I think that it's a civic duty to to really communicate, if you're good at communicating, information that people can use since, you know, now about 80% of people are looking online before they ever go to the doctor. And right. I think that he's made a lot of powerful points and uh, on your show and and in on Twitter and in abundant uh, sources, and he made the same points at this conference, and so I signed up. And I'm glad okay. I did. Um, so, and, and kind of playing off of that too, well, one of the things that, that I that I've read about you is that um, one of the reasons why you picked this specialty is that you really you know, believe in public health and also uh, the belief that that people can really empower themselves with their health, um, especially when it comes to diabetes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, endocrinology is the perfect specialty for me. Um, it's really a happy ending field. Diabetes is not a happy thing to have, but if you do have it, you can manage it, and that is by being empowered. And that doesn't take away from the fact that it's difficult and that every day you never get a vacation from it. But I feel that if you can still achieve your dreams, if you can still uh you know, live life fully, then I think that that is a health issue that I can deal with, I think. And um, and that's different than whenever I was in my intern year and uh, the hematology oncology month that I had, um, I just think it takes, you know, a special soul to be an oncologist for children that um, – I just cried every day. I went into this bathroom that was like my crying bathroom, I called it. Um, I was lo- it looked over the um, the skyline of Dallas, and, and I cried every day because it was just so hard. And um, I, in fact, it was so difficult that month, me and my other colleague, that our fellow attendings were were worried about us because it just happened to be a particularly sad month and they had to sit us down and show us a slideshow that you know so a lot of our patients do very well they live full lives and they had to really show us that we in in the hospital were not seeing the full picture but um i just remember i i got really close to quitting because i just could really hardly handle it so I was after that searching for things that I felt that I as as a physician could really empower and that I could really help people with so that that they could live their best lives. Um yeah let, let, let me explore that a little bit um as far as um what what advice would you give to you know not only medical students but but anybody in the health field who you know, deals with, you know, very tough emotional situations because I know I deal with that, you know, almost on a daily basis too. Um, well, what did you learn from that and, and is, is there anything that you can try to help people along as far as, you know, how to try to manage this, you know, 
pretty much on a daily basis with medicine because that's not a lot of stuff that we talk about sometimes. Yeah, I mean, um, I think whenever you're ever in a field that's that's a passionate field, whether it be medicine or another field, you're going to, going to have extreme ups and you're going to have extreme downs. Now, medicine is a little different in the fact that sometimes it's not really technically a job when you have such a critical point in somebody's life. I mean, I don't think it's honorable to say that that I'm just working a 12-hour shift when I'm at somebody's bedside and they're dying. You know, it just doesn't seem right to say that. And that um, I think it's an honorable job that we have as being physicians and that we are given um, honorable positions in society and that uh, never take that lightly. And uh, we have different... um, criteria that and professionalism standards that we're held to because we are given powers that you know power that we could give somebody an overdose of medicine we could make a medical mistake we could that really affects people's lives and um, I think that we always keep that in mind but we also have a really positive power to make huge differences in people's lives so I really um, do a I think I do a decent job of of trying to separate my emotions but um it's pretty hard because I really do care a lot about my patients and when something bad happens to them or they um are not uh you know doing well with their treatments to say that it doesn't affect me would be a lie it does cuz I really care about them and I'm human and uh, managing that it can be hard, but I think it just takes a little time to figure out how how to manage and balance your life. But um, I feel that the positivity of being a physician outweighs the difficulty, and I think it's really just like having a relationship, too, that you put yourself at risk whenever you're in a relationship that you might get hurt, and, you know, you don't always know what's going to happen, but that it's worth it. And sometimes it's hard. And it's just it's kind of the same rules. Uh, thank you for, for expanding on that point. Uh, well said. Uh, my guest uh, on the line here is uh, Dr. Jennifer Dyer from uh, Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, winner of the uh, Best Handwriting Award in second grade. Did I read that right somewhere? Yes, I did win the Best Handwriting Award in second grade. And unfortunately, my handwriting has deteriorated to some extent, but, um, (laughs) you know, over the years. But I've heard, actually, I've learned a lot of things from my patients that are in school right now. They don't even teach cursive in some schools. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of amazing, you know, but but a lot of kids don't write in cursive. They write print, and that's because they're typing all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's get into this. I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on this show is, is to talk about the study that you did um, with uh, texting patients. We have a good... Uh, Good crowd in our chat room here this evening. Thank you, everybody, for uh, for joining us. Um, to, to start out the discussion, I uh, pulled this audio clip from a uh, uh, from a news report from Columbus. Uh, so I'll play this, and then we'll talk right after. 
Even while she's alone reading quietly on the couch, Kaylin Wallace is balancing a busy social schedule. Her friends and family are as close as her phone, and Kaylin rarely loses touch. My phone's never turned off. It's always on. Uh, I have between, I've had uh, cell phone bills, 5,000 to 7,000 text messages a month. All that texting takes time and sometimes affects Kaylin's health. Kaylin has diabetes and several times a day needs to check her blood sugar levels and give herself insulin treatments called boluses. But with so much going on, it's easy to forget, a trend Kaylin's doctor noticed with several of her patients. Most of them missed anywhere between 9 and 11 boluses per week, that being that there are only three usually per day. So they really were not taking the majority of their boluses. So Dr. Jennifer Dyer of Nationwide Children's Hospital had an idea. Since so many of her teen patients spend so much of their time texting, why not join them? In a small pilot study, Dyer, who's also with Ohio State University, sent text messages to her patients reminding them to take their medicine. And in a short time saw a big difference. The teens were three times less likely to miss a dose. At the end of the texting period, which was three months, they were only missing three or four a week. It worked so well, Dyer is now applying for grants to expand her texting study to include 50 more patients. Kaylin hopes the idea catches on with other doctors because that connection, she says, however it happens, is important. I'm leaving for college soon, so I'm under a lot of stress and I think the little reminders just help. At Nationwide Children's Hospital, this is Clark Powell reporting. Now, Jenna, I've heard you in talks um, kind of uh, the, the origin of this idea was that you're, you're meeting patients where they are. Can you describe a little bit about that and, and, and what your idea was with this little study that you did? Sure. So anybody that has a teenager knows how obsessed and I do mean obsessed, um, that teens are with their phones. They sleep with their phones. They take their phones to the bathroom. They are never without their phones. So obviously they have their phones at their doctor's appointment. So um, at a diabetes clinic appointment, they're often in our office for anywhere between 30 and 45 minutes just back in the room, not to mention being in the waiting room that that's not even the part that I'm including or the travel there. So um, they are constantly with their phones or texting. There's lots of people coming in and out of their appointments, like diabetes educators and nurses and, you know, medical assistants doing their vitals and checking everything. So it's not necessarily rude that they're checking their phones and texting. Um, it's just because they're there for a long time. So... Um, it's just a, a behavior that I noticed, and then when I was reading in the pediatrics journal, at, uh, it happened to be a week before I started doing this, that um, there was a liver transplant program in Mount Sinai that utilized text message reminders, an automated text message reminder. It wasn't personalized in any way. It was just, remember to take your medicine to liver transplant teens. And those liver transplant teens took their medicine better, and they avoided a second liver transplant. Um, there were basically two episodes of rejection in the group of patients that got reminders versus 12 episodes of liver uh, of rejection requiring a second liver transplant in teens that did not get the 
text messages. So that's really a savings of 10 liver transplants just by getting a reminder of a text message, and it wasn't personalized in any way. Just don't forget to take your medicine. Um, and I thought that was really powerful. I happened to read that right before I saw these three teens in my clinic that that happened to all that I know them well because I see them frequently. They were not in doing the best that they could do with their insulin control. And I know that they're all really good kids because I really know them because I have seen them so much over the years. And so I know that they have good families. I know that they're good kids. They just don't want to have diabetes, and they just are 17, and they're not mature, and they don't know about, you know, long-term. They think being 30 is old and that, you know, you can't tell them that 30 isn't old. They don't understand that. So you have to really meet them where they are in order to help them with their health. So it it doesn't do me any good to say, you know, when you're 30 and you want to, you know, be cute and do all these things, like, uh, you're not going to be able to. They don't understand that. So I have to really talk about what what it means to be where they are. And where they are is that they're worrying about what is happening now, that they are you know, worrying about their final. They're worrying about the, maybe their boyfriend is, you know, going to break up or they need to break up with their boyfriend or or vice versa. That um, That's what's going on now and that's what matters. So... All of their life is with their phone. They're socializing, texting, and they don't like talking on the phone. They don't really like emailing. So if that's where they are, then that's where I need to be to help them. So I thought, well, I'm just going to text them, these three kids, teens, once a week. And I thought it would probably help. And I made it personal because diabetes is more than just forgetting a rejection pill once a day. It's... um, three to four shots a day, and it's um, intensive in the sense that in all of these kids, they've had it for a long time, and um, it's multifactorial. So they need personal support, but they also need reminders because they're teenagers and they could forget to brush their teeth sometimes too or you know, forget to put their shoes on when it's snowing. Like they're just teenagers, which is the way that teenagers are. They're just kind of forgetful and a little, ooh, you know. <laughs> and um, so I would say that, you know, the combination of reminders plus support just helps put it in the forefront of their mind that, oh, yeah, I need to kind of be better about my insulin shots. So, in fact, when I saw them three months later, which is really, you know, how often I see them and how often all endocrinologists see their patients, that they had a huge improvement in their diabetes report card, I say, or their hemoglobin A1C. and they went from missing 9 to 11 um, shots per week to only missing 2 or 4, which really has a huge effect on their health and has a, a big effect on their long-term health, too. So something that was really uh, interesting to me when I heard you um, describe uh, exactly what you do, um, you send a text out and say, hi, it's Dr. Dyer, and, and how are you doing today? And and then um, I think you would send out a, a, ne- a next one saying just trying to connect with the patient, relate to that specific patient as far as how things are going or um, how is your week been going. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So uh, the the text that you're mentioning or part of the protocol is the personalized pro- part of the protocol that I think is personalized and offering support that 
I'm just somebody that cares about you because I care to know about you. And and I do. I mean, it's completely authentic. Um, but I think a lot of doctors care a lot about their patients, and I don't think I'm different at all in that way. But that what I utilized was uh, – the information about our specific doctor-patient relationship, and that that's unique to me and that's unique to them. That is what we would talk about. So it's our unique combined interests. So it would be me asking about a, a young girl, her prom dress, because I'm into fashion. But um, I'm a human, so I just have human interests with anybody, and that's just... I'm just a social person, so I just like people, and I'll I could ask anybody about anything, and I talk to people on the elevator, I talk to people everywhere, and maybe it's because I'm Texan, I don't know, but um, <laughs> I am extremely talkative and friendly, and it's funny because um, my father used to embarrass me so much that he would talk to everybody when I was a teenager, and I thought it was really embarrassing. And I'm basically exactly like my dad, and uh, and I talk to everybody too. So you kind of turn <laughs> into turn into your parents whether you want to or not. Now, um, I mean, the, the the response in the medical community has been huge. You know, they they think you're some kind of, well, some kind of you know, cowgirl, cowboy from Texas <laughs> doing all this stuff. You're you're being asked to speak everywhere. Um, and you know, what, what what kind of response have you been getting after you present this material to doctors? Well, I think that a lot of people have said, you know, that you know, teens really text a lot. That's that's a great idea, and and they have said, and and it's true. I'm not the first person to have this idea. I just think that I'm one of the first people to actually do something with it, and maybe that's what makes me unique. But um, and I'm not the first person to do it. Um, very rarely is anybody the first person to really do something. But um, I'm really lucky that my hospital embraced the project and they put me as one of their uh, national press releases. So a lot of the opportunities I've gotten has come from the support of the hospital that I work at. Um, some of the critics of this have said, uh, you know, I mean, you, you don't, uh, I mean, you don't care about patient privacy, you don't care about liability, you know, you're, you're putting yourself at risk. How, how do you respond to those statements? Well, I think that uh, any time that you really do try to do your best and put a little bit of yourself out there. Um, which you have to do to really help people because you can't be a robot. You have to be somebody that cares, and you have to to put a little bit of your personal self out there. I think it's worth it, and I do not feel that I have any regrets about putting my personal self out there. Everything I say and everything I do and everything I write is something I don't mind people knowing about. And I don't have anything to hide. And uh, I just feel that you only get to live once. And if something that I'm doing or able to influence is going to help somebody live a healthier life versus having to be on dialysis at the age of 28, then I'm worth, I think it's worth taking that risk. 
Now, if if I've read this right, I, I think people have reached out to you as far as you know, like smartphone app developers or or how to use technology to you know communicate you know with patients. Uh, did I read that right? Yes, um, you know because of the generosity of my hospital with. Um, uh, using the marketing, the awesome marketing department and media department that really uh, once a month sends out um, interesting and impactful stories from nationwide children's hospitals, such as to places like the Today Show and Good Morning America and to other local news stations as well as papers, that um, I have gotten quite good national exposure about the project. And a lot of there are a lot of awesome, innovative entrepreneurs that are that are IT um, driven, and they have the technical abilities to uh, execute a protocol like I did, and that they are really hungry to to be in touch with a doctor that is in touch with patients that can you know really help them, and I think they really realize that. It really, what the tool is, is that it's a tool, or what the technology is, is that it's a tool to help communicate between the doctor or the provider, whether, and it could be a pharmacist as well, and the patient to help them take their medicine better. So it doesn't have, and it could be a nurse, it can be a nurse practitioner, it can be a pharmacist, it can be any kind of healthcare provider and the patient. And that it's really a tool of extending that relationship and that um, that's what's key to it. That all of the technology development is way ahead of, I mean, all the abilities are way ahead of just texting, which is what I did. But um, actually executing in, in practice is what is is a barrier right now. So a lot of companies are contacting me and I've taken preference to Ohio companies but I have been speaking with uh, one of the developers of Texting for Baby which is a national program that they are thinking you know in a they don't have any specific plans but they are wanting to venture into the field of diabetes and to see where they could be impactful and this texting for baby program is a national awesome program that has been embraced nationally also by the government uh, the federal government and um has been crossed you know across different states and it's helping um women that are pregnant to be their healthiest to have their healthiest pregnancies and and they're hoping to to have the outcomes be have healthy babies too and i'm quite certain it will be healthier pregnancies and healthier babies and they want to use this technology to extend to other health conditions and diabetes is a really big one now talking about uh, childhood obesity um, i saw on your facebook page there that you're you're applying for a fellowship at the white house um with the issue of uh, childhood obesity can you tell tell us a little bit about that yeah um it's a total big long shot. Um, like the application is due tomorrow, so <laughs> I've like uh, finished it up, but I've done like a million quadrillion uh, edits on it, and I'm just gonna give it up um, to the to the gods. 
uh, tomorrow and just send it out there. But um, what it is is uh, a thousand different qualified applicants apply, and qualified applicants are people that are um, professionals like doctors and lawyers and teachers and anybody in the kind of beginning stages of their of their professional careers that have achieved some some national and uh statewide and community success and that uh that are really dedicated to community service and to public service and uh this is a program that like Sanjay Gupta did and Colin Powell and it would be just such an awesome honor. I mean, a thousand people apply and only 15 to 20 people get chosen. They can be from the military, they can be lawyers, they can be doctors, they can be teachers, they can be anybody. Um, but those are kind of the most common uh, uh, applicants. And so what happens is that you send your application in and then uh, they narrow the thousand people down to a hundred people between uh, March and April, and you interview in your different regional areas and with uh, community leaders, and then they uh, narrow it down further to thirty people, and those thirty people go through an extensive uh, background check because then in June they spend a weekend in D.C. and uh, talk to the uh, commission board that has been appointed by the president, which includes members like Tom Daschle or Tom Brokaw, to name a few, which are, you know, huge, um, hugely prominent, amazing people. And those are the people that make decisions based on your uh, leadership abilities, your your dedication to community service, and kind of what things that you could give to to um, you know improve the world or you know the nation. And really, what the point of this thing is is that these are they want to bring um, people that are involved in their in their local areas that are you know emerging community leaders that are passionate about where they live. They want them to uh, be able to go and see the federal government at the highest levels of leadership and see how decisions are made and see how things work in their area of interest and bring that back to their to their local area, which I am such an Ohio dedicated person these days. Even though I'm a <laughs> hardcore Texan, I think Ohio is such an awesome state. And and I really love Columbus, and I really do like Cleveland about like um all their interesting food that you and I have talked about all their interesting food um adventures Choices that are there, there. yeah yeah, yeah. And, so, uh, uh, but so it's really so a fun you, place you so you spend a year in d c doing this well, kind of if I got like chosen, that. what it would be is that I would spend August to august in d c and I would it's very prestigious if I got chosen. So um, my hospital and work would, uh, I would technically be on a sabbatical, it's called, which is what in academics people do uh, when they want to learn something in depth that they have to just be there to experience. So um, my uh, college would pay that, would pay me, basically, or my work would pay me. And then I would also get paid for because I would work, be working, and for the federal government. Um, perhaps it could be for Michelle Obama's 
Um, I mean, that would be what I would be uh, qualified for, but it might be something totally different that needed somebody with my expertise. But I would be on a specific project with a specific goal in mind. And what the life would be like, I mean, I just can't. It's amazing. I It's hard for me to even fathom the dream of this, but what my life would be like is I would start out the morning working with whatever project I'm dedicated to. Then every day at lunch, I would go to the White House for lunch. I would have lunch with the president once a week (laughs) with the 15 or 20 other people. And the speakers would be, you know, the Secretary of State, Colin Powell, maybe Prince Charles if he was in town. Um, you know, anybody that's visiting, to, and that's part of the education program. Then you would go back to your, to your, you know, job, and then uh, there would be all these, you know, networking meeting or little cocktail things or, you know, conferences Schmoozing. or whatever they do in D.C. Yeah, and that you wouldn't even be be going home until like 11 o'clock or midnight because there'd just be so many interesting people. And then you wake up and do the whole thing again, and you work through the the weekend. You work like a dog, you know, that you you get experiences that you'd never get. And that one yeah. on one international trip, they get to go on on Air Force One and go with the president on an international mission, you know, for yeah. if it be like a you know, the top eight, or what is it, the pack eight, or maybe I'm thinking football, <laughs> but the big <laughs> eight leaders, I need to educate myself on all these things. But, um, you know, these these type of things. And then you get to go on a couple of domestic missions too. But it would be, um, what I think is that in my area here in Columbus, Ohio, that was actually an, ex- and I believe in Cleveland as well, after having visited now and seeing you and your wife there, <laughs> that uh, I think that Columbus and Cleveland have really progressive, um, innovative food cultures that are <laughs> that are really fun and they're interesting and they are like I said progressive and I think really ahead of a lot of places and sure, I sure. dare anybody to, to argue with me I'd love to but um, <laughs> but I think that oh. it's a really exciting place and that sadly even in really exciting places that I think that a lot of people have really good intentions that really want to help decreased childhood obesity, but they are all not working together. And I think that if we all work together more and we had somebody that brought everybody together, because there are all these little separate awesome projects that are like reinventing the wheel, going all over the the place, but yeah. we need to have them work together. And and to ha- and that's what I would I would, you know, really yearn to learn about how to do that. And right. and how to come back to to my community and make that happen because there's a lot of magic here and lots of oh, yeah. people's yeah. minds and um, it's it's alarming in my clinic. I'm seeing a hundred pound two year olds and a hundred and fifty pound three year olds that do not have a hormone problem, but that's what they're there to see me for, and they don't. But um, it is 
extremely concerning to me because they they really do want to make changes. They just don't know what to do, and they don't have the guidance that they need. And as an endocrinologist, I mean, if they don't have a hormone problem, I – I don't have much to offer beyond whatever I know personally, which actually I know a lot about um, nutrition. I've lost 20 pounds. Yeah, I was just going to say that on your I, – I saw this Facebook update, and it says, uh, yes. excited to start the new year almost 20 pounds lighter by reducing calories and increasing activity, practicing what I preach all day at work after making a promise to a little patient. Cheers yes. to 2011. That's yes. great. So what I did is that I've cut out processed foods. So I have macaroni and cheese, but I have real cheese instead of bright orange powdery craft macaroni and cheese. And, um, I mean, I don't eat that all the time, but I, I eat everything on the outside of the grocery store. So that everything on the inside, I don't eat anything there. And I don't. Right. I also don't eat like the biscuits and Pillsbury cinnamon rolls either. Anything that has like a long ingredient list, I don't eat it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's it, huh. you know. And I drink a lot of water. But my sin is that I drink Diet Coke, which I know that yeah, Dana I, would appreciate. I know I do too. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I do too. So there you go. But I, I I did I did read this Facebook update that you, you and you talked about a little bit about before. Saw another morbidly obese toddler this week in clinic. This time, a seventy-year, a seventy-pound two-year-old scares me more than the hundred-pound three-year-old that I saw. Can you talk about that? Actually, hundred and fifty-pound three-year-old. Yeah. Um, whenever you see these children, I mean, it's it's hard to really imagine what a seventy-pound two-year-old looks like, um, but they are very noticeable and. Um, and it just feels wrong for them to start out their life that way. Um, and the parents, they're not, they're not horrible people. Um, they, they just don't know what, how to help their, their children eat better. And a lot of parents that are out there, you know, it's, it's a horrible feeling if your child isn't eating. Um, it's, I think it's probably a biological thing. Like it, it's painful to see it. Uh, when your child doesn't eat, and um, and so you sometimes think that you know if they just eat something that that it's okay, uh, but it really is important what they eat, and that the ingredients of what they eat are balanced, and and that you know that they're not going to die or starve if they don't eat, if you know if you want them to eat a pea or uh, you know and they don't want to, but. Um, I do think that it's important about how they develop taste, and there are some some studies that show that whenever, and I'm not sure if this is exactly, you know, for sure, but um, in practice, but at least in studies, it shows that whenever women are pregnant, and in the early stages of breastfeeding as well, that what they're eating is influencing their baby's taste buds. And I think a lot of moms would say that, that, oh, you know, I ate a lot of spicy things during pregnancy, and my children, they, you know, love spicy things. But if you really think about food, about the, especially like Indian food versus Mexican food versus Italian food, you know, that all the different flavors that, that you traditionally um uh, 
correlate with with those foods are really pretty different and and really like asian foods are are really really different with their traditional flavors and whenever you think about um babies that are eating you know foods that we would think are are really um unusual like a pickle popsicle or I mean, things like that. I went, actually, in Cincinnati, there's this big food mart. I can't remember the name of it. Um, But it's like this world food mart, and it's so fun to walk around. It's this huge warehouse, and it's got a Russian section, an English section, an Asian section. It's got the most unusual fruits and vegetables, the best cheese section I've ever seen. I mean, it's just it's just fun to just go walk around, so I have. And I, when you look in the different areas, like what they've got for, like, the popsicles and and kids are eating those, like, I can't imagine American kids eating some of these popsicles. Like, you know, um, you know, flavors that aren't necessarily sweet and they're kind of more bitter, uh, which Americans don't typically like. So um, I think it's just interesting that that a child will be drawn to whatever different flavor set based on maybe what they're used to. Mm. Okay. And maybe it mm. has something biologically developmental, um, maybe it's just, you know, what they're used to and it has like an emotional component. I don't know. But um, I do yeah. know that the development of taste buds as far as like studies of how you can influence things has um, a component of plasticity whenever a baby is is born or, you know, like developing, that they can develop into anything and that um, there are lots of influences. And so I wonder if really, you know, whenever mothers are pregnant and before they're pregnant so that they have their, their own prior, you know, preferred taste, that per- perhaps if they had less of a, a yearning for sweet and fat foods, and more of fiber or bitter and kind of, um, or it's called umami, um, which is like the kind of mushroomy, earthy taste that tend to be um, a little bit different than the sweet and fat taste, that maybe that would make it easier for kids to not want to just eat chicken nuggets and hot dogs, right? Well, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I get in this, you know, with, uh, you know, with my patients too, you know, I, you know, when I see a big kid and I see, you know, big parents and I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, that's kind of what's going on. But I mean, it's, you know, the whole kind of, you know, genetic versus environmental versus both versus how do you try to approach this? Because, you know, when you're looking at the kid, um, and you see the whole family kind of looks similar, you know that it's a bigger problem than just with the child. And, and, and but one thing that, I'll tell you that of... I think, I totally agree, but that whenever you ask the, the overweight parent, um, a lot of times when you ask them when they were two years old or three years old, and even if you have them bring in pictures, they weren't at all to the same extreme that the kids are now. Okay. They're, so they might have been a little overweight, but they were not, you know, 70 or 100 pounds as a two-year-old. So to some extent, I think that it has been exaggerated. And right. and whenever I think about whenever I was, you know, in school in the first grade and the second grade, there might have been one child that was overweight, but nobody else 
was really like technically overweight. You know what I mean? Right. 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 And I went right. to a public school. I mean, I went to a nice school, but in the sense that, but I think it was pretty representative of of you know mainstream Beaver Cleaver America a little bit. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, 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 it's always an interesting discussion, you know. I mean, you know, because you know, childhood obesity is a big problem. It's a multifactorial problem. It's not a, yeah. you know, you know, it's there's a lot of different things that have to be addressed um, at all different levels. You know, whether, you know, whether it's at the government level or at home or in the community, and it's a public health thing, and and it's it's not something that's going to be fixed quickly um but it's something that needs to be addressed and it's 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 hard to really try to know where to start well you know in the application i have to write a policy statement to the president <laughs> and um i wrote about obesity prevention for kids and using healthcare social media yeah <laughs> and well there you I, go yeah. yeah, so, hey, maybe, you know, I propose a strategy to use that. So we'll see if it could ever be, uh, come to fruition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my guest is uh, Dr. Jennifer Dyer from uh, Columbus, Ohio, from the uh, Children's Hospital there. And uh, in our uh, closing moments here, I was reading something here, Jen, and are you are you associated with, with the Dr. Oz television show? Can you tell me a little bit about that? I'm not associated with the Dr. Oz television show, but I'm associated with ShareCare, which is answering questions online. So I get assigned different questions, and I answer them, basically, is what I do. And that I'm on a listserv for uh, whenever Dr. Oz on his show needs uh, expertise that I can provide. Wow, that's got to be interesting. Yeah, I wasn't. Um, I, I certainly said yes to that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you also write for NetWellness dot com, which is a uh, com, uh, consumer um, health website. Um, how did how would that opportunity? I mean, I, I, I presume it's a continuing of your love with journalism and medicine, but but how how did that come about? Well, uh, when I was getting my Master's of Public Health at The Ohio State University, um, that we had to do a practicum, it's called, as part of your completion and conclusion of your uh, experience as as a Master of Public Health. And so I uh, chose that as my practicum. And... uh, what I did was expand health literacy online and, uh, and uh, again, in keeping with my mission for and civic duty that I feel to give health literacy information to people. That's accurate and useful. Mm, yeah, and, and and something that uh, um, that you've done also is is uh, you've done one of these TED talks in Columbus, uh, which is for people who don't know what that is, it's kind of a where really where all the cool people come, where like there's like people do innovative things and in, in not just medicine, but a lot of different disciplines. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll put that link in the chat room here. Um, and I watched it, and it was it was very good. Is was that something that you just applied to do? Because because I, I know you talked about your your uh, your texting study um, in in that prison. 
Well, um, I'm a really lucky person that I happen to be friends with the uh, director of the Ted Columbus program. So um, she invited me, and uh, I was more than happy to accept, and uh, it was a great experience. Um, and I was looking at some of the other presentations. It's like a whole day of kind of innovative stuff having to do with technology and uh, just people talking about what they're really passionate about um, as far as trying to, you know, basically change the world. Yeah, and, you know, what's really great is about these TED Talks is that they actually are really locally and uh, community-driven uh, events that um, – in the sense that it's a national phenomenon, but it's locally uh, driven. And that, in that sense, I thought it was so impassioned and inspiring to hear about people that were really passionate about where I live and uh, about Columbus, Ohio, which it was uh, one of the guy that kind of got the winning or the best presentation, winning presentation, and I still talk about it all the time, which is why he had the winning presentation, um, was talking about the uh, topographic and demographic, specific mostly demographic changes in uh, Columbus population over time. And he used a lot of graphics, and um, it was so interesting to see about how things have changed so quickly where people – you know, have moved, if they moved from Columbus, where did they go? Um, if people moved to Columbus, where were they from? And um, who are the people that live in Columbus? And just really telling me more about the city that I live in and that I love now. And that um, interesting fact is that the only city that has more uh, college students in it is Boston. Number two is Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> which, you know, makes for a innovative, fun kind of place. But um, a lot of people that live here um, aren't necessarily all college students, but um, it's just an interesting, open-minded, diverse place. And I think <laughs> it just makes it really fun and interesting for sure. Now, something that I'm really excited about um, is um, the the talk that we're going to do in Columbus in April, and uh, we're going to talk about social media. We're going to be at a sports medicine uh, conference, and the uh, director, addition um, for the hockey team down there, the uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets, and uh, we're going to we're going to talk about social media in April. And I'm very excited about it. I'm just I'm, I've been thinking in my head this whole week on, on stuff that I'm going to say, and uh, uh, it'll be great seeing you again, and, and we're just, we're just going to rock the house on that deal. Yeah, and maybe we can score some uh, Blue Jackets tickets, too. Because <laughs> 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 I've actually uh, never been to a hockey game. I probably That's probably really bad to say, but I've never been. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and you're going to be in New York next week or next month or something like that. Uh, I doing, am. Uh, that's, yeah, that's very exciting. Yes, I'm very excited about it. I'm going to talk about um, M Health and Mobile Health as a movement to help um, you know move move forward, uh, help and improve health outcomes. 
Um, and uh, what are you going to say? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to say actually the same exact talk that I'm going to say in, in two weeks, or a little less than two weeks, in Orlando, Florida. And yes, I'm kind of glad you, to get like, out of the snow. <laughs> do, you, do you ever work? I mean, you're like, you're I know. Lecture circuit, man. It's awesome. <laughs> well, I'm jealous. I, they put me on call, like kind of, kind of extra duty here to make up for all these little little excursions that I have. But um, yeah, this the talk I'm going to is actually to uh, insurer and payer talk, which I'm really excited about because it's an audience that really needs to hear about how to use social media to improve health outcomes and how that people like yourself and and me that are avid hobbyists, but um, we do it because we love it, but our colleagues are not going to do it unless it is something that is honored and awarded in their work life, you know. We do this outside of our work life because we love it and it's our passion and we are, I must say, pioneers in this area. So um, sure. we do it in in a way that's different than most, but um, we also do it in a way that we hope that our colleagues would also embrace. And the only way that they're going to embrace it is that it's shown to be valuable and shown to be uh, part, as far as our doctor work life, that something that that payers think is is valuable. So. Um, and I think payers should think it's valuable because it can save tons of money for them. But and most importantly, it improves people's health. And if people are healthier, they don't need to use their health insurance. Right, right, right. I mean, it's a pretty simple concept, but I'm going to propose a very probably elementary kind of financial cost-benefit cost curve saving analysis um i am not a financial or business person but um i'm going to i've i'm doing the best that i can with it in a way that makes sense to me but um the problem with all of what we're doing and how we know that it co- improves health outcomes but we don't know how to make it work in a business model and in that sense, it's kind of like the Internet whenever it first came along, that everybody knew it was a great idea, and everybody knew that they'd want to use it. But how can you perpetuate it so that it doesn't go away since nobody's paying for it? <laughs> so right, it's kind of the same right. thing, and that's kind of where it is right now. Uh, my guest is uh, Dr. Jennifer Dyer from uh, Columbus, Ohio, from Children's Hospital there. And uh, um, so as we start to kind of uh, close up the show here, but the, the themes that I, I want to emphasize again that you've really brought out um, very well uh, when, when talking about patients is, is, you know, meeting patients where they are. And I'm not talking about, you know, pediatric patients. I can I can draw lessons from that too. And, and the second lesson is is that, you know, people, patients, you know, they, they can. I really have faith that, that they can empower themselves, um, not only about their health, but in life. And and I think that's something that that we as doctors can really encourage our patients to do. Um, you know, we we run into you know people all all the time, especially physicians who you know they're they're very frustrated, they're very cynical, they're very you know that you know they sometimes they get just too a little bit too frustrated. But but I I think that that we can. 
you know, especially as physicians, encourage our patients to to really, you know, take a little bit more control of their lives, their health, and and trying to meet them where they are because it's it's it can be very difficult sometimes uh, because you know of this situation or that situation. Um, I think that's that's some of the lessons that we can that we can bring, um, especially just just from what you said tonight, Jen. Well, thanks, Mike. Um, let's see. I think that was all that I had here. Is, is, is there anything? Is there anything I forgot? I, I know we we had this huge uh, list of stuff that we were going <laughs> to talk about on the show tonight, Jen. Uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, I think we've really covered. That... Yeah, I mean, um, I think we've covered most everything. Um, I mean, <laughs> do your chat room people have anything they want to add? No, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're showing you some love in the chat room. Okay. There. So, uh, and uh, I, I, did, I did want to bring something out on your, on your Facebook uh, page there. So you're excited about the, uh, about the Golden Globes. Is that this weekend or what? I don't yes, know if all of it is. So every year I have a golden retriever. So I watch the Golden Globes with my golden. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes, I really am that cheesy. Um, but uh, he is going to wear a vintage bow tie, um, tux bow tie, and then I always get dressed up every year too. And but the best part is that we just sit on the couch and I have my slippers on, but a but a formal gown. So it's both comfortable and chic. Formal gown, you know? really? Are, yes. Are, are you really? <laughs> Yeah, I you do. You better take and, a Facebook page of that, man. I want to <laughs> see that on your Facebook yeah, page. Yeah, it's, it's like awesome. um, it's my tradition every year. And in fact, <laughs> when I was in uh, getting my public health or master's of public health, I uh, befriended some like-minded ladies in our uh, business. What was it? Hospital business finance class, which was definitely not my natural um, understanding. And uh, we decided that we, and we all had business-oriented husbands that were going to help us. So we got our husbands together to help us with the project while we watched the Golden Globes. (laughs) And then we said, okay, y'all tell us what we need to know. So um, so that was like a... (laughs) <laughs> that was my business class, sadly. But, I, I mean, uh, I'm trying to learn about business. And really, you know, I feel that I, I really don't know about business, and it's probably because I did things like that. But um, I'm l- trying to learn, and I am spending my free time trying to understand economics. And it's really hard. Um, well, I mean, another another entertainment question. So did, did so did I read that right? You went out to the uh, American Idol finals. Was that right? How was how was that experience? The American Idols final? No, I didn't ever do that one. But um, oh, I did go I to went... Fashion Week. Oh, that's um, right. Okay, that's what you I, mean. I was reading that some. <laughs> um, how, how how was Fashion Week? So actually, I um, got to be on Oprah. That was in 2009 and you know I think there was like whenever I first started on Facebook I think it was like in 2008 or something like that um, that there was that circulating question about 25 things do you remember that like 25 things that you want to do in your life 
or that you, you know, are kind of like a bucket list, I guess. And I had put on that list, you know, I want to be on Oprah someday, um, all kinds of kind of random things, that whatever came to my mind. And one of the things was, so once I got to be on Oprah, I said, you know what, I'm going to make these things come true because the whole Oprah thing was crazy. Like how it's just somebody's looking out for me, I guess. But um, so ever since then, I just said, I'm going to make these things happen. So one of the things was that I wanted to go to Fashion Week. So I um, tried to ask all the people that I know, including all of my hair friends, and they had some friends that did makeup and, you know, were fabulous and everything, but they couldn't get me any tickets. So um, I looked online, and what you can do is get a press pass. So I applied to get a press pass because I do blogging, <laughs> or I write on the Internet, right, quote. And, um, and I did you get the press get, pass? I did. Yes, I wow. did. And it, um, I had applied in time, and I sent my, you know, $80 or whatever it was, and I got a press pass. So then what happens is that you, because you have to send clippings of your writings, so I sent different things that they could search. And they probably are like, who is the heck is this medical person? But they probably like diversity, like everybody. So they picked me. And then... Uh, then they give this press list to all of the designers, and the designers pick which press people they want to come. They probably are random about it. I'm sure they are, because Diane von Furstenberg picked me, which, for any of the ladies that are listening, she is the inventor of the wrap dress, and she's quite an amazing uh, 70s, 80s, (laughs) transgenerational female icon. So... I was beyond excited. So I got to go to the Diane von Furstenberg fashion show in Bryant Park in the tents on the last year that they had the tents. So wow. it was beyond uh, beyond anything I've ever, you know, really experienced. So I wrote um I wrote an article uh to Vogue, um but I got rejected. So uh, but I tried to talk about how that fashion and style are empowering and that empowering yourself in health is also empowering. <laughs> but they didn't buy it, so but I didn't care. It's still a dream, so Wow. Uh so I, I put the link in the chat room of, of your Twitter account. Um and uh you know, <laughs> before I met you I, I, I saw your Twitter like your uh avatar or picture yeah. up there. I'm like can you explain that a little bit? What is uh, what's up with that there, Chance? Yeah. So, um so I thought when I first started Twitter, well, I I mean, I it started kind of, you know, developing and such. And so, uh I had some people, well, I have these hair friends, you know, hair and stylist friends, and um they were like, "You so need to get a professional headshot." So, um the guy that did my professional headshot, who's so awesome, it's called Roheric Productions, R-O-H-A-R-I-K, um, here in Columbus. And he has done photographs, fashion photographs for Vogue. 
And um, so I said, well, I just want to be really chic and goddess-like. And um, it was such a good experience. Like, I highly recommend for any woman to ever have this done because they are, I mean, so amazing. They, they the you know, the, the makeup people, the hair people, they make you feel so darn good. I mean, so good. <laughs> you know, and they're just playing the best music and just like you are so gorgeous and you know it's like the way that a woman feels when she's a bride like everybody is you know looking at you because you you know you look pretty because you have an awesome dress and you have everything you know it's just such a great day so it's kind of like that in that sense that and they are able to make the photograph be the way you want. And uh, they have all these interns that, like, make the fan. They just hold the fan there. And, you know, like, it just feels, like, so fabulous. So it was such a great experience. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I highly recommend it for anybody. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a question in the chat room. Is, uh, what about men? <laughs> what about men? Um I don't know. You guys need to tell me that. I, I swear, I, I really don't understand men. I understand women really well, but um, I don't understand the motivations for men. Like maybe if you're holding a football or something, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> maybe oh a Buckeye football or a basketball there since go. they're going to be number one. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um I got uh, I got nothing else. So um, so before I let you go here, Jen, can you uh, tell people if you know because uh, we're, we're they're showing you some love here in the chat room here. Where where can they oh, find cool. out more information about you out there on the internet? Well, I think that probably the best source is um, if you go to osu.edu, um, but or if you Google me, um, there's lots of stuff that actually. I have a Google alert on myself, so I and probably all of us social media types do, so that we are monitoring what's correct out there and what's not correct. And most everything's pretty correct, although a lot of those doctor websites like Vitals.com or I don't know what all what they all are, but they're not right because they have me living in in Dallas and and other people completely all wrong. So. Um, I don't know, you know, what the best solution for finding a quality doctor if they can't even get what city you live in, right? <laughs> I don't think that they're really the best source. <laughs> but um, a lot of things that are out there are things that I know about and that are true. So, um, But probably I'm the most active on Twitter. And if anybody wants to ask me any questions, I'm happy to reply back. All right. Well, sounds good. Hey, uh, I can't believe that uh, we only have a few minutes left here on the show, and it just went so fast. And uh, it was uh, it's always great talking to you, Jen. And uh, I well, can't wait to see you uh, when, uh, when we're going to just uh, have this awesome presentation coming up in a couple months, and it's just going to be legendary, and uh, they're going to yeah. be talking about it for, for years. Everybody should come to Columbus, Ohio. Oh, yeah, on tax day, April 15th. <laughs> You know, we, we should we, we should work with the organizers and see if uh, see if yeah. they have a budget to uh, like live stream the thing. That'd be uh, that'd they be awesome. They should they should do a youth stream. 
<laughs> All right, Jen. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'll definitely follow up with you, uh, you know, as, as uh, after the show here. And uh, uh, it's, uh, but you know, everybody's everybody's been loving the show. People, uh, there's like 20 people in here, which is like huge. Sweet. Well, uh, but, so. hey guys, I'm not I'm not actually online, so I can't actually see everything. But there you go. Rock stars are awesome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for the time tonight, and uh, then we'll talk very soon. Take care, Mike. We'll be in touch. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, kids. So uh, that was uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Jennifer Dyer. You can find her on Twitter at EndoGoddess. Uh, thanks so much uh, for being on the show. Well, we just have a few minutes left here uh, this evening. And uh, so just to kind of close things up here, let me just give you a, a preview of what's going to be happening uh, later uh, this month. Um, uh, one week from tonight, uh, we will have the authors of uh, probably the uh, fastest growing uh, blog out there by medical students. Uh, very popular. Uh, it's called the Future of Family Medicine blog. You can get there by going to futureoffamilymedicine.blogspot.com. Very good commentary, especially when it comes to um, health policy type of things. Um, and uh, this is, you know, literally the future of medicine here. So uh, we'll be having them come on one week from tonight. Uh, two weeks from tonight. Um, and if you see uh, DrAnonymous.com, and uh, it says that there's going to be some show transitions. Uh, and what that's about is there's gonna, there are changes going on here at Blog Talk Radio. And um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be continuing uh, the show here uh, because uh, just of what's going on here on the network. So um, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but uh, two weeks from tonight may be the last show here for a while. Uh, so, uh, uh, stay tuned next week and because it may be the last Dr. Anonymous shows for a while. So that's all I'm going to say about that. So, uh, but thank you, uh, uh, for joining me here this evening. Thank you again to my guest, uh, Dr. Jennifer Dyer, Endo Goddess on Twitter. Um, and don't forget to check out me at dranonymous.com, dranonymous.net. DrAnonymous.org. Uh, that's all I have for you here to, this evening. Thank you for joining me, and uh, I will play this song here, and uh, we are out of here. So thank you all for joining me here this evening. Good night, everybody.
as your day unfolds Challenge what the future holds Try to keep your head up to the sky Lovers, they may cause you tears Go ahead, release your fears My, oh my Eh, eh, eh You gotta be bad, you gotta be bold You gotta be wiser You gotta be hard, you gotta be tough You gotta be stronger You gotta be cool, you gotta be calm You gotta stay together All I know, all I know Love is safe today, yeah Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.